Friends, on this first Sunday of Lent, we return to Luke chapter 4, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. While John leaves Jesus' temptation out, the other three Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, do include the story. Mark's Gospel covers the whole thing in two sentences. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was there 40 days. Satan tempted him. Wild beasts kept him company. And angels waited on him. That's it. The other details about what the devil said and what Jesus said are in Matthew and Luke. And even then, those two are a bit different if you take a close look. Our text this morning, Luke 4, 1 through 13, often comes around in the early days of Lent. And it's usually preached and remembered with one of the following emphases. Number one, know your scripture because Satan knows it too. And number two, Jesus conquered temptation, so should you. Well, you should know scripture, yes. And you should be mindful of the tempting voices in your life competing for your attention, the voices that scream, you need more, or you're in charge, or do what you want. But I want to be careful not to beat you over the head with the read your Bible better stick or the you're terrible stick only five days into Lent, just as we're getting started. However, as we approach our text this morning, I do want to challenge you to take following Jesus into the wilderness seriously. Discipleship means becoming more like Jesus in what we think, say, desire, and do. And that means if Jesus goes into the wilderness of his own volition and the power of the Spirit, so will we. As we approach our text this morning, I'd like to offer this summary of the origins of Lent for those of us for whom the oranges, the oranges are not familiar or for those of us who are new to Lent or to Ash Wednesday. And this summary is written by Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal priest, an accomplished writer, and a professor. And I really value the way that she says this. She's a really intelligent and devoted follower of God. Uh, Barbara writes this in the article entitled, Settling for Less. Do not bother looking for Lent in your Bible dictionary. There was no such thing in biblical times. There is some evidence that early Christians fasted 40 hours between Good Friday and Easter, but the custom of spending 40 days, 40 days in prayer and self-denial did not arise until later when the initial rush of Christian adrenaline was over and believers had gotten very ho-hum about their faith. Barbara says, when the world did not end as Jesus himself had said it would, his followers stopped expecting so much from God or from themselves. They hung a wooden cross on the wall and settled back into their more or less comfortable routines, remembering their once passionate devotion to God the way they remembered the other enthusiasms of their youth. Little by little, writes Barbara, Christians became devoted to their comforts instead. The soft couch, 
the flannel sheets, the leg of lamb roasted with rosemary, these things made them feel safe and cared for, if not by God, then by themselves. They decided there was no contradiction between being comfortable and being Christian, and before long, it was hard to pick them out from the population at large. They no longer distinguished themselves by their bold love for one another. They didn't get arrested for championing the poor. They blended in. They avoided extremes. They decided to be nice instead of holy. And God moaned out loud. What an encouraging quote for us this morning. Our text occurs in an uncomfortable place and invites us to be curious about the areas of our lives where God is moaning, waiting for us to worship the Lord and serve no one else, to dare to expect great things from God and from ourselves. So let's listen closely and well for God's Spirit. Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first two verses of this text serve as an introduction, followed by three temptation scenes, and a cliffhanger in verse 13 that closes this particular story but certainly leaves us wondering about the next opportune time the devil will pounce on Jesus. There are many biblical commentaries and sermons and Bible studies that wonder about the significance of these particular temptations, food, power, protection. And there are several observations that bear repeating for the sake of our communal memory as God's people. The first is that these three temptations were meant to disprove that Jesus was truly the Son of God. In his mind and in the eyes of his followers, 
These were tests designed to trick Jesus. So the devil could say, ha, this isn't the one. He failed. He's not the Messiah. He's not God's son. Number one. Number two, the second observation is that once again, Jesus knew his scripture. It is written, it is written, it is said. And therefore, he could recognize when the devil was attempting to tempt him, to manipulate him. And finally, the content of the temptations themselves is worth noticing. Jesus was tempted to abuse his miraculous power, his privileged position, and his supreme authority as son of God. Jesus was tempted to fulfill the expectations of others instead of his own understanding of God's will. Jesus communicated through his responses, it is written, it is written, it is said, that God's will was more important to him than anything else, more important than his own life or his own agenda. In his wilderness story, Jesus modeled well what it can look like to serve God and God alone. But Jesus' wilderness exam is not the same as ours. In fact, our wilderness exam is going to look a lot more like an Adam and Eve wilderness exam and a lot less like a son of God wilderness exam. The wilderness, as Barbara Brown Taylor defines it, comes in so many shapes and sizes that the only way you can really tell you're in one is to look around for what you normally count on to save your life and come up empty. No food. No earthly power. No special protection. Just a Bible-quoting devil and a whole bunch of sand. That's the wilderness. Of all the places in Scripture, the garden, the quiet stream in Psalm 23, the new heaven and earth from Revelation, of all those places and many others, the wilderness is not the first place we want to go. Who intentionally commits to go to a place where you strip yourself of the people, habits, circumstances, or choices that cushion the illusion that this life is all about you and your comfort and focus instead on personal transformation? Who goes there? Who thinks about the parts of themselves that have yet to be converted? Who goes to the place where we recommit ourselves to be who God is calling us to be. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus all the way to the cross needs the kind of clarity and grit that is found only in the wilderness. The wilderness is the first stop on the Lenten journey. Every year I am grateful for the invitation to 40 days of wilderness wandering in my own spirit and in the church, I am grateful, and it is hard. We know about the wilderness, or the desert, as it's often called, because the wilderness is a really important setting in our shared story. God met Hagar in the wilderness, remember, and ministered to her in her grief. It's where God met Moses, and Elijah, and today, Jesus. It's where God nurtured the Hebrews and formed them into a chosen people. The prophet Hosea says that the desert is the place 
where God speaks tenderly to our souls. Very few of us have been to the desert wilderness of Israel and Palestine where Jesus' wilderness story took place, but I'd be willing to bet that every one of us has been to a wilderness of our own. For you, maybe it was a hospital waiting room. Maybe it was the hallways of your school. Maybe it was the couch of a friend who let you crash there when things got bad at home. Maybe it was the phone call you made telling your spouse you lost your job. Maybe it was the tightening in your chest when you begged for a word from God and heard nothing but the silence of the night. For me, wilderness has looked like long car rides, a monastery in Kentucky, the chapel at Western Theological Seminary, and Pastor Stephen's office as we've prayed for and hoped for our North Holland family. For me, wilderness moments have been walks on the beach with my husband, Eric, words of wisdom from a voice coach when I was in college, the pages of many moleskin journals, and the treadmill at the gym. The details of our wilderness stories do not always align, but they share two important features— They remind us that we are not our own. We are not our own. And they make something more clear than it was before. Jesus walked in the wilderness, full of the Spirit that descended upon him at his baptism. As he emerged from the waters, a voice from heaven said in Luke 3, 22, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. After his temptation, Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth and read these words from Isaiah, which you can find in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The story of Jesus' temptation is bookended by calling and anointing. God called Jesus beloved, his son, and filled him with the very Holy Spirit that guided Jesus into the wilderness. And then Jesus left the wilderness with clarity in his calling. He was beloved. He was tempted. He was anointed. I can imagine that as he grew up, Jesus' mother, Mary, told him of the angel's words to her, that Jesus would be the son of the Most High, reigning over Jacob's descendants forever. I can imagine that his father, Joseph, reminded him of the day Simeon took baby Jesus in his arms and called him salvation. My parents do this, remember these stories about who I am from when I was young. Jesus knew of his ingrained desire to know God and study the Torah, so much so that we read in Luke, his rabbis asked him questions about its meaning for their lives. Jesus knew 
God was pleased with him. He knew he was set apart. He knew his love for God's word. And yet, Jesus chose Lent and was led into Lent by God's Spirit to pause, to prune, to get more clear about what it meant to be the Savior of the world before becoming the Savior of the world. This is the first of many instances where Jesus will go into the wilderness. If Jesus chose to go to the wilderness, we've got to go. We go into the wilderness not to prove our belovedness or to punish ourselves, not because our life is bad or because our life is good. We go because there are temptations vying for our attention. We go because we are beloved by God and called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. And we cannot do that if we are unfocused or distracted. We go because we need to hear from God. We practice Lent because Jesus called us to abundance, repentance, and redemption, all of which are difficult to experience and share with others if we're living for ourselves. We practice Lent because in our busy and fast-paced world, it's easy to lose our sense of urgency for God's kingdom and the good news of the gospel. We practice Lent because some of our ways of being need to be reevaluated so that mercy, justice, and peace might reign in our hearts and in our relationships. We begin the season of Lent with the imposition of ashes, the ashes on the forehead, as a reminder that our days are numbered. As we mark the sign of the cross on our foreheads, we hear the words, you are dust, and to dust you shall return, but you are made alive in Christ Jesus. If you weren't able to be with us on Wednesday, remember with me, Ash Wednesday is not about the fear of death or God's wrath. It's an invitation to the wilderness, the place we remember we are not our own, And in the wilderness, we wait to hear from the God who's given us life. It's a place of hope, transformation, and redemption, a place where we are not overwhelmed and paralyzed by fear, even though we may enter that way, but we are empowered by the Holy Spirit as God's called and anointed children. Sometimes the wilderness is the place of our deepest pain or regret or sin or betrayal. Sometimes. But the true sign that you are in the wilderness is when you are willing to say, Spirit, create a clean heart in me. Search me and know me. That's the wilderness. I I find myself wondering how long it's been since you visited the wilderness. How long it's been since we have visited the wilderness. Over the past few weeks in our How to Lent series, by the way, he's really proud of that title, so if you see him, just, you know, pat him on the back, How to Lent. In our How to Lent series, Pastor Stephen led us through Matthew 6, 1 Timothy 4, and Psalm 42, 
to ready ourselves for Lent. Now it's here. Lent is here. It got here last Wednesday. Know as you enter it that you are known, you are loved, you are welcome. Remember that the God of Psalm 91, which Annalyn read for us near the beginning of our time together, the God of Psalm 91 is the God of the wilderness. The psalmist said this in Psalm 91. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. That is the God of the wilderness. My deepest honor as one of your pastors, and I'm pretty confident this is true for Pastor Stephen as well, is being invited into your wilderness, holding the tension between knowing how deeply loved you are by God and how blessed you are, and at the same time knowing there is more going on behind the smile on Sunday morning. Sickness, death, prison, bullies, Addiction, shame, suffering, uncertainty, all of these are being faced by some of you right now in your wilderness. As we continue in our own wilderness and in the wilderness as God's church, I'd like to offer a poem. I did not write the poem. It's called Beloved is Where We Begin by Jan Richardson, and she reflects on this idea that we are called to the wilderness, but only after we are blessed as God's beloved, as Jesus was blessed as God's beloved before making his way into the wilderness. I've always loved reading and writing poetry, so I'd like to share this poem with you as a word of encouragement as we continue in this wilderness wandering together. So hear this poem, Beloved is Where We Begin. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are, beloved, named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go without letting it echo in your ears, and if you find it is hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what the journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger or thirst, from the scorching of sun or the fall of the night, but I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way, there will be rest. I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this, that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength, that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence whisper our name. Beloved. 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 Beloved of God, would you pray with me 